then we will begin this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together, this day that we call Resurrection Sunday. Lord, it is marked this way because your son beat death. He came out of that grave as we've just heard and just been reminded from song after song. It's because the grave could not hold him. It's because he defeated sin and Satan on the cross. And though he died as the wages of our sins, death could no longer hold him. And Lord, you prove that you beat our sin. You prove that we were forgiven and you came out of that tomb. And Lord, this is a glorious day to those who call themselves Christians, followers of Christ. This is uh, the capstone, the crescendo of the gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ has given us life. And so, Lord, it is with great joy and with great ease we sing those truths to you. And we ask now as we search your word and study it and hear what the word of God has to say, that it would penetrate our hearts and minds this morning. That we would not just be hearers, though, but we would be doers of the word of God, those who seek to glorify you in our lives day after day. Because we are sons of the risen King. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. Bless it now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, the German theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this, Christ did not come into the world that we might completely understand him, for he is infinite, but that we might cling to him, that we might simply let ourselves be swept away by him into the immense event of the resurrection. The resurrection is the capstone of the gospel. It is everything that brings the truth of that gospel all the way out into the light is that Christ came out of that grave. I want you to think about this this morning. God in eternity past personally designed a perfect redemption plan. A plan that he laid down before the foundations of the world. And guess what he called this plan? The gospel. He called it the gospel. And this plan was based on the finished work of his impeccable son. We love the doctrine of impeccability. That means Christ was perfectly sinless. There was no error in him, no wrong. And God based his gospel plan on his son. And his son came and perfectly executed a life here on this world, a death on a cross, and God resurrected him from the dead. And what he did in that resurrection was he proved, he proved he forgave our sins of all those who believe. And so now we understand our God. He's opened our mind to our almighty living God, and we cling to Christ. We cling to him. And that's why we, sing, why we sing the way we sing, why we're so excited about what we believe here. Now, the resurrection can't be overstated. It is uh, the essential part of the gospel of God, right? Uh, certainly, our Lord had to die. He had to be that substitutionary death. He had to be that perfect one who would die for us. And, and all those who would believe their sins were imputed onto the Lord Jesus Christ. Friday night, we were out here like a bunch of crazies in that cold remembering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there the imputation of sin was fully seen in the cross work. 
God takes our sin and he imputes them to the Son. And the Son dies. He pays the wages for those sins. And then those who believe get the imputation of righteousness. So we receive. We receive his righteousness so we can stand in eternity. But listen, the resurrection was a triumphal goal. If we just had Christ die on a cross and his body be put in the tomb, we would have no security that our sins were forgiven. And so when we think about the resurrection, it is the triumphal goal, it is the object, it was the purpose of God's gospel. And all that the true Christian church believes rests on this unchanging truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, he had victory over our sin, he had victory over Satan, and listen, he beat death. Nobody beats death. Jesus beat it and gives life to us. This is such an important truth that Paul said it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, he said, If Christ has not been raised from the dead... Now listen to this. Of course, this is not true, but listen to what Paul is saying. If Christ had not been risen from the dead, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. See why we're so excited about the resurrection? See, because he was raised from the dead, our faith is not worthless. It is actually a greatest value of anything we hold is that we have a God-given faith, that God opened our hearts and minds, plunged faith in to believe in his son, and we are the most wealthy, spiritually speaking, people on the planet. Those who put their faith in a resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, at the birth of the church, the importance of the resurrection was highlighted so much that the Jews always met on the Sabbath, which would have been the, second, the seventh day. It was so important to the doctrine of the church, to the doctrine of Christianity, that they switched their day of corporate worship. And they began to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. You know what that was saying? That says that the gospel, the resurrection, was the priority. And here, 2,000 years later, look at us, jammed in this room, when most of the world's afraid of all kinds of things. Here we are, a bunch of crazies, jammed in this room because we believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're overwhelmed with his glory. And we come and we seek him Sunday after Sunday. We gather corporately together because this is our act of worship. This was ordained. It was ordained by God. And we proclaim his finished work day after day. Now the resurrection captures our hope in such a glorious way. And the resurrection was placed on a worldwide stage. Rome, the superpower of the world, right? The Jews, this prominent nation that has survived century upon century, enemies upon enemies. There, they were the center of religious worship. There, God brought his son to that town, to Jerusalem, and put him on a hill called Golgotha, outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside the camp. And there, God had him nailed to a cross. And I want you to think about this, so that you and I could be holy and blameless when we stand before him. Oh, friend, if you're here today and you think that you have good works to offer the Lord, I want to tell you, what the Bible says, they're filthy rags. See, why Christianity, why this church, why we hold so strongly to the gospel is because the gospel is devoid of our works. 
It's devoid of anything we bring. And so when we focus on the Bible, and we really study the Bible, everything focuses down to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That work on the cross, how he beat death and, and came out of that grave, everything is focused on that. And then we respond as worshipers. We sing old hymns that we have nothing in our hands, but simply to the cross we cling. And that's what we believe. The only thing we did bring was sin. And so the resurrection teaches us that we have hope. The resurrection also teaches us that we have hope that we're going to be like Christ someday. The resurrection teaches us that there's a hope of eternal life in heaven. And not just being in there and, and enjoying one another, but we're in heaven with a resurrected, physical, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. We will see him as he is. The Bible teaches us that we will have bodies like his because the Lord God resurrected his son, he will resurrect our bodies someday that will be joined with our souls. And we will have bodies like him. Listen to this great passage, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared yet as what we will be. We know that when he appears, when Jesus, the resurrected king, returns, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. See, the resurrection certainly stamps the approval of God that our sins are forgiven, certainly shows us that we've been justified by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it reminds us someday, brothers and sisters, those who are believers in this room, that God will resurrect our bodies someday. And he will join them with our souls, and we will spend eternity with bodies like Christ for all of eternity. What power and strength we will have to worship God for all of eternity. Now, despite what the world says which is controlled by the, uh, Ephesians 2 says, by the son, the one who works in the sons of disobedience, death was not the end of human experience. When we die, it is not the end of human experience. We must understand that, and the resurrection teaches this. The Bible taught that death is the doorway to eternity. The problem is there's two types of eternity. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, if the Lord doesn't return, you're going to die. Life will go out of you. And one moment after you die, you will be in the presence of God or in the presence of judgment. Because the verse goes on to say that one man is once to die, and after that comes judgment. And there are two types of judgment. There's one that, well, you will pay for your sins for the rest of life. The wages of sin is death. We know that. But there's another judgment where God looks upon his children, where he has granted them faith and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees that he judged Christ on our behalf and he welcomes us into his kingdom. Jesus said it this way, John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming. Think about that. As this world grows evil and evil, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So Jesus himself says he's call, he calls people out of the grave and will come forth. Now listen to this. Those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, the good deed is believing in Jesus Christ. They receive eternal life. But the verse goes on to say this. And those who committed evil deeds to the re resurrection of judgment those who rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's a resurrection. And the resurrection reminds us of that. 
And everyone will be resurrected, some to eternal judgment, some to a glorious life in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Not a popular view of today, right? The world teaches, oh, we're all going to be happy after death. We don't know what it's about, but it'll be all fine. Don't worry about it. The Bible warns that there's judgment coming, but there's eternal life for those who believe. If you have some notes there, I want to look at three thoughts today, and you can turn to Luke 24, and we'll start there. Number one, the resurrection is the hope and the message of Christ's church. I love this last four verses that Dr. Luke spoke or wrote here, inspired by the the Spirit of God, and they're so full of joy, and I want to let this bounce into this message of, of joy. The resurrection is about joy. Angels rejoice. Women at the tomb, once they began to understand, rejoiced. The disciples rejoiced. And the church has been rejoicing for 2,000 years. Luke chapter 24, verse 50 through 53. Notice, and he led them out. That's Jesus. And this is after his resurrection. He brings them out as far as Bethany and, and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted or departed from them and was carried into heaven. Now, here's what I want to focus on this first point. And, th- and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. That verse launches in to a clear understanding what the early church 2,000 years ago, how they worshiped and what they did, but it also tells us what you heard today. If you're new here and maybe haven't been to a church that sings as loud as we sing and worships the way we do, it's a church that is totally, 100% convinced that Jesus Christ is our king. And we bend the knee to him. We bow to him. We gladly submit our lives to him. He is our strength for our daily lives, our marriage, and our our raising of children, our jobs. We, We strive by God's grace to put him in the center, and this causes us to have great joy when we do that. Now, the resurrection is the hope of the message of the church it always has been. And Christ's true church, through redemptive history, has clung to the glorious hope of the resurrection. And I want to show you that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you go to your right, you'll run into Acts and Romans and then on to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Down through the ages, the church has written creeds. And a creed is, is simply a, a statement of truth. Um, if you go to our website, you'll go to our doctrinal statement. It'll say what we believe and teach there. That's, in a way, a creed. We tell you, we teach and believe this and this. And we list that and show the verses why we believe and teach. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Spirit of God leads Paul to start out with something like a creed for the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says, Now I, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God speaking, make known to you, brethren, the gospel. He's not here to make known what he thinks and, and what he thinks the church should be doing. He's here to make known the gospel. And notice what he does, which I preach to you, and then which you receive, and then which you stand, and then which by you were saved. Now, I love that. We preach the message. By faith, God-given faith, it's received. Then you stand in it. Do you know what that means? It means you believe. What do you stand for? Somebody may ask you someday what you stand for. So Paul said, and this is what, 
we preach. This is what was received. This is what we stand upon. And notice this, the last part there, starting in verse 2, this is why you were saved. This is what gives you assurance that you're saved. And notice he challenges it a little bit in verse 2. He says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, he's making sure that salvation is not of yourself. He's asking a question. Did you receive this? Do you stand in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, notice this creed in a sense he gives in verse 3 through 4. This is a statement. This is the the early church. This is what they held to. Let's see if it's anything different than 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later that we believe. Look what he says. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So, This is the first thing. This is the most important thing. I got it from God. He's telling us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, right? We we remembered that and celebrated that on Friday night, that he was buried. And then look at this, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What a creed. We still believe that statement to the core. This is everything we're about. We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the scripture says that we're all sinners, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what we call depravity. And we have have no right on our own to stand before the Lord. So somebody has to die in our place. Someone has to bring us and make us acceptable to God. We believe that. That's what Paul is saying here. We believe he died. He was really died. It wasn't some kind of passing out or lost conscience for a while, he died because the wages of sin is death. Jesus died for our sins. And they put him in a tomb. You don't put live people in a tomb most of the time. I hope not. They put dead people in there. And that was to show that God judged him for our sins. Isn't that beautiful? Sad, but beautiful, right? He died for our sins. Oh, but notice in this great creed here, death couldn't hold him. He died according to the scriptures, but he was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to scriptures. Just like the Old Testament had taught, just like the word of God had taught, just like Jesus told them over and over. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to Acts chapter 2 real quick. I want to take you through a little jet tour through the book of Acts because I want to prove to you the message of, of the resurrection is constantly taught. This little band of believers after the resurrection... The Spirit of God falls upon them in a new and fresh way like it had never before. Remember, Old Testament, the Spirit of God empowered people for certain events. But in the New Covenant, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God stays and indwells a believer, marks them, shows that they are redeemed, were sealed with the Spirit. And so here comes the Spirit. It falls upon these these dear brothers and sisters, and they begin to let all that joy out in their preaching in a very hostile world. Drop into chapter 2, verse 22. Here we find Peter, who really has been the spokesman for the disciples for many years, and now he is the spokesman to the early church. John and the other disciples are with him, and notice what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know yourselves, right? There's no doubt. People knew what Jesus did. He watched them raise people from the dead, feed thousands, um, care for the sick, cast out demons. But notice where here he goes with this. And here comes the gospel gun. This man, 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Well, let's stop right there. Whose plan was the salvation? Whose plan was the death of Christ? It's God's. The Bible says right here that he predetermined, he predestined Jesus to die for us. This was all done in his foreknowledge. He knew all this. He planned it from the beginning of time. Oh, but man's not free of responsibility, is he? Notice what the verse says. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So God determined that the only way to save human beings was to send his son and let him die on their behalf. But man in his wickedness had their part, didn't they? In fact, let me say this. This is quite bold, but I think I can prove it from the scriptures. It was your and my sins that nailed him to the cross. It was actually our voice that came out, crucify and crucify him. You say, well, I wasn't there. But look, your sin says, I don't need Jesus. And we put him on the cross. But notice verse 24. He's not just a dead Jesus, right? Verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. The first sermon to the church. This is the birth of it. 3,000 people get saved at this message. God just gathers in a large swath of believers and floods their mind with truth. And in this very first service, notice the highlight on the resurrection. It is truly amazing. Turn over to chapter 4 with me. Chapter 3, they heal a man at the temple. And here we go again. The religious leaders are going, oh, not these guys again. We just got rid of Jesus, and now they're doing the same thing. And they're now preaching in the name of a resurrected Jesus. And so they don't want to deal with this. And notice in chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up. This was all the religious leaders of the nation, right? And they being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, notice this, the resurrection from the dead. Well, the Sadducees rejected resurrection. They believed that the body was sinful and evil and material, and there's no way that it's ever going to be resurrected let alone this Jesus who we killed be resurrected. And so they're, they're very upset with these men. Well, if you follow back down, you see that they bring them out of prison in verse 7. They put them in the center, and these are the killers of Christ. These are the same men that, that cried out, crucify him, and had him put to death. Peter is gripped, filled with the Spirit in verse 8, and notice what he begins to say in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, there it goes again, right? You're responsible for it. You sinned against God, you crucified him. Whom God raised from the dead. I mean, the, the church is barely birthed. This is the, the, the main teaching over and over. We see this. By this name, this man stands before you in good health. And notice this when you talk about Jesus here. They said, he is the, the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone. This one that you put to death, God has taken him, made him the cornerstone, and he's building everything off of him. And you killed him. And you know why we know that? Because God raised him from the dead. And the church and everything it has done is built on the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see the apostles just hammering this resurrected Christ home. And they rejected this. But look what Peter says in verse 12. And if you're here today and you think somehow you're going to get into heaven by 
maybe believing but not caring about Jesus or, or thinking you're a good person. Look at this verse. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this is an incredible text. I think what Peter's saying here is just what Jesus said to him. John 14, 6. You can't get to the Father except through me. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father. There's no way to heaven except through me. And Jesus says, that's the way it is. Kill us if you want. This is what we have. We believe he died for us. God beat death, raised him from the dead, and our faith is in him. Look at chapter 5 with me. Church is growing. Thousands of people are being saved. God is gathering in this large group of people, and he is establishing his church on earth. And notice in verse 17, these Sadducees and their associates, they are filled with jealousy. It's an interesting word. That word filled is the same word that says that Peter was filled with the Spirit. And it literally means they're gripped. So Peter was just gripped with the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel. These men were gripped with anger. They hated this message. See, they want to be the way to God. They want the way to God through them. Boy, you try to come through a man and try to get to God, you're going to hell. Because no man outside of the man, Jesus Christ, can bring you to God. And so they're gripped with anger and jealousy here. But as you follow this down, they're brought back out. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. They put them into prison. They said, let's keep them there. And they're trying to meet and say, what are we going to do with these people? And some guy comes running up. He goes, hey, you know those guys you threw into prison? Uh, they're out. And they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ again. And you know the story. An angel comes and lets them out and set, tells them, from God, you go preach this message again. So drop down to verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered and said, look, we must obey God rather than men. Ooh, that's coming our way someday. You know that, doesn't it? Church. There's a point we do everything we can to submit to our government, local and national and all that and state. But there's a day coming when we may have to say this. We obey God rather than men because we're not going to go against the word of God. Verse 30. And God, notice he says this. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Here he goes again. Whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Now, look, he's talking to these Jews. These guys think they're saved because they're the descendants of Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, look, the God of our fathers raised him up. So you're either with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or you're against him because that's who raised him from the dead. Oh, that boiled them, didn't it? They didn't care for that at all. Notice what he says, verse 31 He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior and grants repentance to Israel, the forgiveness of sins. Now look at this. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to obey him. Brothers and sisters, chapter after chapter, you can go to, uh, I have them all listed here. You can go to chapter 7 and then chapter 8 and then chapter 10 and then chapter 13 and then on to chapter 17. Message after message is centered around the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He's why we sing the way we sing, why we preach the way we preach. Listen to this last one. Why we live the way we live by the hope of this and power of the Spirit. Second thought this morning, the resurrected Christ commissioned his followers to proclaim his gospel with great joy. We'll go back to that passage there in Luke 24. I want to tear that apart just for a moment here. 
Jesus leads them out to Bethany there. And, and if you remember, out just east of Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives. And the little town of Bethany was around the backside of that. And that's where Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived. And Jesus moved back and forth while he was in Jerusalem there. So this was a very common place. And just before he departs this world, he leads them out there. And, and they would have been there just um, not too long before this, weeks before, they would have went to the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus wept the night before his arrest. There he wept with great sweats of blood, like, like drops, of, great sweat, like drops of blood, the Bible says. And there in agonies, he realized what was going to happen to him. He was going to take on the weight of sin of all those who would believe. He was going to take on um, a separation from his father as the father judged him in such a severe way for our behalf. And so he, he leads them back here. But now he's the resurrected Savior. And he's about ready to ascend. And the Father's going to bring him up and give him the right hand. And, and notice in, in verse 50, he, he lifts up his hands and he begins to bless them. He begins to, to bless them. Now, this is not some spiritual ritual, something of crossing yourself or some kind of good luck charm in any way. This is... Jesus, the resurrected king, blessing them. Paul tries to put words to this by the inspiration of the Spirit. He says in Ephesians 1.3, speaking to us, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, now listen to this, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And this is what the Lord is doing. Everything that God had given to Christ, God gave him salvation to execute. God gave him the Spirit to give to the disciples. God called him the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word. And so the Word of God is given to the disciples. The fellowship of the saints, people who believe together. This fellowship, this koinonia was given to them. They have a hope of eternity. And now they have everything they need, as Peter says later in 2 Peter chapter 1, they have everything they need for life and godliness. That's what he's doing. He's telling, look, don't try to come to me any other way. Come through my finished work. I bless you with my salvation. I bless you with a hope of eternity. I bless you with the strength that I'm going to meet your needs and take you through this life and bring you back to me. And this is what causes so much joy. Here, this resurrected Savior still marks in his hands as he had to show Thomas because Thomas was slow to believe. Uh, a gash in his side where a, where a spear was jabbed up in there. This is him, physical, in front of his disciples saying, I bless you. I bless you with everything you need for life and godliness. The disciples now stood as they watched this Lord Jesus Christ ascend. And notice in verse 51, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried away into heaven. Part of this is revealed in Acts chapter 10. And Dr. Luke, of course, writes this account, but he also writes the book of Acts. And and there, as they're leaving, they're gazing. And, and, I, and I don't think it's not gazing with trouble. They're, they're grateful. And, and two men, these angels, appear. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken into heaven will return the same way as you watched him go to heaven. And there's just great hope. Great hope. Let me remind you, believer in this room. If you die and you're a believer, you'll go instantly with, to be with the Lord. But some, some may be alive when the Lord returns and he'll gather us together alive with him. And this is a promise. And you can't have that unless you believe in the resurrection. 
Because if you believe in the resurrection, you had to believe in his death, that he died for your sin, and God raised him from the grave. I think what he's doing here, friends, is he's relieving their fears. Look, I'm the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament talked about. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be with you. In fact, as I ascend, I'm going to give you the Spirit of God to walk you through it. I love 52 and 53. Isn't this beautiful? And they, after worshiping him, has the idea that as the Lord ascended and they were looking up, they maybe fell to their knees just in awe of who he was. Here's this Lord who came, was born of a woman, born under the law, lived this perfect life, called us out of fishing and tax collecting and and all kinds of different uh, walks of life and had us walk with him for three years and we witnessed him day and night in his perfection and then we watched him die for us. And then he beat death and he came out of that grave and I think they just fell to their knees. See, I think this is what the church does. This is our, our goal as preachers and pastors and shepherds and teachers, as uh, musicians and worship leaders and so forth. Our goal is we want you to worship the Lord. We don't want you to worship this. We don't want you to worship Riverbend. We don't, we don't want you to worship anything but Jesus Christ. And I think they were just overwhelmed to notice they just worship him. And look what happens. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. See, they're convinced fear is gone. They've been left with a message to share with the world. And they're full of joy. And notice, they return with great joy and we're continually in the temple praising the Lord. Oh, that's what we do. We return. Our goal every Sunday morning is to come, exalt Jesus Christ, preach his word verse by verse, depend on the word of God, strengthen our souls, mine and yours, and then we go out of those doors and we go rejoice in this world. Are you rejoicing? Or are you sad? If you're sad, you probably have sin in your life or some sin is, is affecting you. It's time to repent of that stuff. God wants Christians to have joy, to have joy in their marriage, joy in their homes, joy in their jobs. We are saved people. And that can never be taken from us. Oh, the message, message of resurrection goes far beyond the tomb, doesn't it? It goes into our daily life. Well, one more thought here, and I want to give you some Fun things to think about here. Number three, the resurrection drives Christ's church to joyful worship. The resurrection drives Christ's church to joyful worship. If you have a pen, maybe you want to jot some of this down. Uh, Just some thoughts. Number one, the resurrection stamps God's approval on the completion of the plan of salvation. I think that's pretty joyful, isn't it? Here's why I think it's so joyful. Because I am not asked to somehow muster up what I need to to do, fulfill some giant list in order for God to be happy with me. I don't have to look at my life in some kind of scale system and go, oh man, I I better go to church more. Maybe I'll give some more money. I I, I gotta live in, in anxiety thinking somehow. Look, the resurrection, what it did is it stamped God's approval that all those who believe in his son are free from their sins. It's, it is the most joyful thing to think about. That's why Resurrection Sunday is so fun, right? We have so much joy. And I pray for a moment, maybe you came in here with a heavy heart. I pray that you've been able to lay that aside and you'll deal with your heavy heart differently as you go out because Christ accomplished. You know, on the night of Jesus' death, some of his last words were what? Three little words. It is finished. 
What a beautiful truth. What are you trying to add to the perfect work of Jesus? I'll guarantee you'll be frustrated. You won't be fun to live with. Your life will be difficult. Because what are you going to add to the perfect work of God Almighty through Jesus Christ? What are you going to bring to that to make that better? See, this is why the resurrection is so joyful. Because we don't add anything. We respond. We respond by grace and the faith God gives us to live out for Jesus. A second thought that brings great joy is the resurrection proved our justification. And it's along the same line, but it, it, it reminds us that our sins are removed. Listen to how Paul ends the chapter 4 of Romans, verse 25. He says, He, Jesus, who was delivered over for our transgressions. Those are violent sins, sins that we know. We walk across the line. God said, don't do this, and we did it, and it started at birth. And then he says this, but was raised for our justification. Now, the word justification, if you've not heard that teaching, if you come here, you'll hear a lot. But it means to be declared righteous. So at the resurrection, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is applied to all who believe, and we are declared righteous. Now, why is that so important, and why is that so joyful? Do you know in heaven there will never be unrighteous people? And the reason we're righteous in heaven, because we have God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. So justification is that God declares us righteous. He dresses us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know why that's important? Because you're going to stand in the presence of God forever. Heaven is wonderful because there's no sin there. It's perfect. And so God justifies us. And here in this great doctrinal book of Romans, at the end of chapter 4, he says, we have, He was raised because of our justification. Oh, doctrine of justification is getting messed with. It's messed with by a lot of bad religions. They'll, they'll mix it. Well, yes, Christ justifies you, but then what you do and what you add and what you give and how you live, that equals out and helps finish justification. That's a lie from hell. Because you and I will never get to heaven if that's the case. <laughs> because we'll always fall short. See, justification is by Christ alone. And we receive justification because Christ beat death. Third, resurrection marks Christ's victory over Satan. He's a bad dude. He hated God, coveted his position, got kicked out of heaven, and he went after God's highest creation, man. And he targeted them. And he went after them. And man bought the lie. They're wrong. Adam and Eve, we sinned in Adam and Eve. We, we understand that federal headship thing that we fell with when they fell. But he targeted them. And in the garden, there, probably the pre-incarnate Christ as he's with um, Adam and Eve, he says, look, there's a day coming where I'm going to crush the head of Satan. And I'll tell you what, he took a mortal head wound when Christ walked out of that grave. And he's still wiggling around and got a bit of movement to him, but he got crushed. And the justification and the work of Christ, the resurrection, teaches us that. And so we don't fear Satan. We don't try to claim things over him. We're sons of the king. And thus, mom, dad, what would you do? How would you give your life to protect your children? And you're not even God. <laughs> Our father's God. And he protects us from him. And though we don't mess with him, he's an evil one, we know that he has been beat. He's been beat. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 says that Christ took death out of his hand. Not for my children. Not for mine. 
He took them out. Fourth, the resurrection marks the end of Jesus' earthly limitations. I think this is fascinating. Think about this. When the Lord comes to earth, he dresses himself in humanity, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 2. He limits himself so he could be us, so he could represent us, so he could stand on our behalf. And I, I think this is a fascinating thought. Our Lord, who created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says, uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all speak of Christ as creator. He steps out of heaven. He dresses himself in humanity with all the limitations. So he hurt and was tired and hungered. He was tempted in all ways, but without sin. He limited himself. Now listen, after the resurrection, all that's gone. You and I have a resurrected Lord with no limitations. And he's powerful. And it doesn't take but a cursory read of the book of Revelations and throughout the Old Testament, he's coming. And you want to see his power? Oh my goodness. He'll breathe on the nations and wipe them out. (laughs) That's an ultimate weapon. And he's on our side. See, the resurrection, he returned that power and he ascended from this earth. And guess where he went? Where did he go? To the right hand of the Father. That's exactly right. There he has all authority that God has. He shares all of his glory and shares all of his power. And there he is. No limitations because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave him everything. He told the disciples, because I've been resurrected, God has given me all authority under what? Heaven and earth. So everywhere, Jesus Christ has all authority. The resurrection paved the way for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them the night before his death in John 14, he says, look, I got to go because if I don't go, the Spirit can't come. The Comforter can't come and you need him. And he's going to spotlight all that I've done and all that I've said and he's going to teach you the word of God. You know, that's a great joy. We have a Bible here. And believers, if you're a believer, you can read this and understand it. And you can understand the Christocentric nature of the Bible. You can see a biblical theology walking its way through the scriptures, all pointing to Jesus Christ. You can see that because you have the Spirit of God. Some of the greatest minds in the world try to read the Bible and they go, oh, we don't get it. But not a simple young boy who walked up to me this morning and quoted six verses out of Luke 20, 24, who can't read yet. The Word of God is powerful, isn't it? And the Holy Spirit comes and applies that to us. Seven, the resurrection would grant believers the ministry of reconciliation. Oh, we get to join what Jesus is doing. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you and I are ministers of reconciliation. That means we get to tell people that Jesus beat death, rose from the grave, and he now offers eternal life to those who believe in him. That's Reconciliation. Some of you in here need reconciliation with spouses or somebody in your life that you're having problems with. And that's good. You should do that. And I want you to do that. And we want to help you with that. But the greatest reconciliation that your marriage and everything else needs is reconciled with God. The problem is we were away from God. We didn't have a relationship with God. We need to be reconciled with God. And so that's what God did through Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Now he's offered from the resurrection, he's offered you and I the opportunity to give people that reconciliation. You know what? what's so good about this is you don't have to save them because you can't. So what you get to tell them is their sins can be forgiven. You can say it with confidence because you know God did it to you through Jesus Christ. And so what a great ministry we have. Two more. The resurrection of Christ. The resurrected Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and is also the head of the church. 
Hmm, I really like this one. I am the teaching pastor here. I serve with eight other elders. We shepherd the church. That's our job. We work for the head of the church, Jesus Christ. I am not your head. The elders are not your head. Christ is the head of the church. Now think about an organization where there is one who beats death, has the ability to grant faith and secure your life for eternity. That's the kind of organization you want to be involved in. All other organizations are going to fail. Governments are going to fail. Schools, institutions, they're all going to fail, but not the one who has the head of Jesus Christ in the forefront. (laughs) Oh, that's good news because Jesus, when he resurrected, said, I'm now the head of the church. I'm the head of the church. He is our head. We bow the knee to him. The Bible tells us he also is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's led us all out, meaning firstborn from the dead, meaning he came out of death, so he leads us out of death, right? He grants us life. Last one, the resurrection signals the beginning of Christ, merciful and sympathetic in intercessory work for us. Oh, Hebrews says that he intercedes for us day and night. And he's sympathetic. He's been, he suffered in all ways, the Bible says, and yet without sin. So are you suffering today? Are you hurt? Has somebody hurt you? Has, has your sin brought you to a point where you're just done with it? There's a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who will stand on your behalf in front of the Father and intercede for you. And he can forgive your sins. Oh, see why they went to Jerusalem full of joy? See why the the disciples didn't care anymore? Peter, who denied and and went and hid and did all that, now he's standing in front of the killers of Christ so bold, like, hey, what are you going to do to me? My king is the resurrected Christ. I'm going to preach the word. Hey, we got to have that boldness, right? That humble boldness as the church. Oh, isn't this good? Good day, isn't it? Let's pray, and we're going to sing one more song together and be done. Father, thanks for this time together. Um, Lord, I spent the week studying your son, studying all the effects of his death and resurrection, and I'm just overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by his goodness, and I pray this congregation of people here is overwhelmed as well. We serve a resurrected king, a resurrected savior, one who beats sin, took care of it on our place, justifies us, clears us of all wrong. He beat death. And Lord, we may die in these physical bodies, but we will never see the second death. We'll never see the judgments of God because Jesus was judged in our place. And Lord, Satan does not have rule over us. He does not have control. We are no longer his children. We have the head of the church who guards us and protects us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for the reminder of this weekend. Lord, let this flood in tomorrow. We've heard great things here at Sunday School May it live out in Monday school and Tuesday and so forth, Lord. And bring us back again midweek and and next Sunday, worshiping and clinging to Jesus Christ. Oh, you're so worth it, Lord. Hear our last song here, Lord. Hear our praise to you. May this bring glory and honor to you, our resurrected King. In Jesus' name, amen.